says uh, 40 days. And that's what we're going to turn to over the next number of weeks here at First Baptist Church is the last 40 days of the life of Jesus. Last week we celebrated his resurrection and prior to that, of course, on Good Friday, his crucifixion. But that wasn't the end of his life here. We usually stop there and we forget that there's more that took place. He then was here on earth for 40 days, like a month and a half before he then left this world. And uh, that was the last time he's, he's been here over 2000, about 2,000 years ago. I've said to you many times, and I will hopefully say it as often as I can, Christianity is primarily history. It's not mystery. It's not moralism. It's not, the purpose of Christianity is not primarily to teach you how to be a good person, though I hope that happens. Christianity is not primarily about pie in the sky, by and by, though I hope for that too, but that's not what it's about. Christianity is primarily history. It's, these are things that are extremely well documented historically that happened on this earth, and Christianity is about the implications of those. Christianity is primarily about Christ, Jesus, who, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll find that there's no major scholars in the history of the world now who do not acknowledge that this person named Jesus Christ actually existed. They might disagree on what he did and other things, but that he lived, there's no disagreement at all among historians. There was a real person who lived by the name Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua of Nazareth. There was such a person. He lived on this earth and he did a lot of things. And last week we celebrated the centerpiece of Christianity, which again is an event. Somebody actually walked out of a grave and never died again. That's pretty significant. If that happens, um, all bets are off. It changes pretty much everything. And that's what is recorded. Now obviously that's a big, that's a big thing to swallow. Not every day do we see people walking out of graves. In fact, we've never seen that, and we probably never will. So it's a pretty big deal. And if somebody's going to tell me that somebody walked out of a grave some 2,000 years ago, I need proof. I need somebody to show me that this is actually true. It's not some myth somebody made up. And so what we're going to look at now over the next number of weeks is what happened during the 40 days after Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's why I called the series 40 Days. This is a, a, a well-known historian. This is what he wrote. Raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. In other words, and I think this is pretty easy to substantiate, there is more evidence in history for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for almost any other event that's happened. And you might say, well, this is what the Bible says, but so what? Well, it does what the Bible says. But remember, those who wrote the Bible are some of Jesus' friends, including some who never met Jesus, like Luke, who is a historian and a medical doctor. But we also have things told about Jesus from the first century from Josephus, a, a Jewish writer, from Suetonius, a, a Roman writer, from Tacitus, from Pliny the Younger, and many others. And of course, the main basis is from the historical accounts 
in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now today, our focus is going to be on what I'm going to title Convincing Proofs. We're going to look today at the appearances that Jesus made after his resurrection. I think it's been noticed by almost everyone that Christianity is completely based on one single event. That's the resurrection of Jesus. It's a house of cards. The Apostle Paul said that. Paul says, if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and it didn't really happen, you're pitiful. And that's true. Because as a Christian, there are probably things that you'd like to do that you don't do because you say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Well, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead and you deny yourself some of those things, you're an idiot. You shouldn't do that. You're stupid. That's what Paul says. That's what the Bible says. So the fact that this is actually true is very, very important. And so now what the, what the Bible is going to show us and history is going to support is that Jesus made many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared. We're going to look today at 12 recorded appearances. You've been watching the news lately, and one of the tragic, tragic things that's happened over the last several months in our, in our history as a nation is this doctor, Dr. Nassar, who sexually abused all these women. And I think the number was something like 160 of them came forward to testify against him. Now, with 160 witnesses coming forward to testify against someone for his wrongful behavior, do you think the guy's guilty? Yes. Duh. <laughs> 160 people? Of course it's, he's guilty. You can't get 160 people, all of whom can testify with details about what happened, and you'd say, that is absolutely true. That man's guilty. Keep that in mind now as we look at the history of the post-resurrection appearances of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is written by Luke. Luke is a doctor, a medical doctor. He's a historian. He never met Jesus. He writes as a historian, and he tells us so. Here's what he wrote. After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, the words there, many convincing proofs, comes from a Greek word that means testimony that you, would, that you would bring before a law court that could not be disagreed with. This is a strong word. Here is going to be evidence that you cannot disagree with because it's crystal clear, just like 160 witnesses before this Dr. Nasser. That's very convincing proof. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. His first appearance was to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is a very important person. She had a pretty hard life. The Bible says that she had, as you're going to see from this text of Scripture, she had seven demons. Now that's pretty bad. That means that she had, I guess in Bible terms, you'd say she had sold her soul to the devil. And she was living that way. That's a pretty bad way to live. But she met Jesus somewhere along this, her life. And by the way, she's from Magdala. That's why she's Mary Magdalene. 
And that's just a few miles around the lake from where Jesus was living and with his disciples in Capernaum. And she met Jesus, and her life was changed. And she became hopelessly devoted to following Jesus. And so Jesus is going to give her something pretty important. Here's what the Bible says. When Jesus rose, oh, by the way, Mark, who wrote this, he's an eyewitness. He's not one of the 12 disciples, but he's an eyewitness of what he writes. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Now, one of the things people like to say is, well, the, the disciples, they're kind of dumb, you know, they believe anything. Well, that's not true. First of all, they're pretty normal. They're just like us. They were not inclined to believe. Who in the world is inclined to believe that someone comes back to life again after they die? We don't see that in life. They didn't believe it either. So Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the risen Jesus Christ on Easter morning. She went to tell the disciples, the rest of Jesus' followers, and they said, we don't believe you, Mary. No big surprise there. His second appearance was to another group of women. Here's what it says. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, because they had, had seen that his grave was empty, and they had been told that Jesus is, is he's not here, he's risen. They're afraid, but they're filled with joy. They ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Oh boy, can you imagine what that sounds like? They came to him, clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Now let's stop right there. I hope that strikes you as interesting. I think I would say inarguably, maybe someone would argue with me, but inarguably the greatest event in human history is the resurrection of Jesus. And the first people to see it were women, not men. Now, God's trying to say something. I would say in the Bible there are three great, 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 great events in the life of Jesus. One is his birth. We call it his incarnation. The second is what's called his, his he was transfigured in front of them. Some of the glory that he had when he was, before he came to this earth was demonstrated to some of his disciples. And then the greatest event of all is his resurrection. Do you know who he shows those three events to? Shepherds fishermen, and women. Now, those are not at the top of the social hierarchy, by the way. At the top of the social hierarchy are PhDs and pastors and doctors. And these are the lower ones. And God says, dudes, I don't follow your social hierarchy. I will not follow it. Because I do not think your doctors are more important than a group of women. I don't think your PhDs are any greater than a bunch of shepherds or fishermen. So the first witnesses of the greatest event in human history are women. I think God is trying to get us with that one. Because we don't normally see life that way. He does. Well, the third appearance is to Peter. And this is a good one. Because as you know, in the story, Peter was the, the, the tough guy. He's the leader of the group, and he's the one who said, Jesus, I'll stick with you through anything. Jesus said, no, you won't, Peter. 
Within one day, Jesus said to Peter, 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 today, this very day, you're going to deny that you even know me. Peter says, I'd rather die than do that. Jesus said, Peter, you don't know yourself. And within a few hours, Peter had three times denied that he even knew Jesus, cursing and swearing a blue streak. And he realized what he had done. And The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. Probably Peter didn't see Jesus crucified on the cross. Why? He couldn't see through his tears. The guy is a broken man. He said he would never fail Jesus. He would stand up for Jesus. He would defend Jesus. And he did the exact opposite. And he's a broken man. Now, you'd expect Jesus to say, hey, you guy who thought you're tough stuff, just get lost. It's not what Jesus did because Jesus loved this guy. And so the Bible says that Jesus went and sought out Peter. Probably happened on the morning of Easter Sunday. This is, these are some of God's messengers speaking to some of those at the tomb, the graveside. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. But go tell his disciples. And Peter. Now, Peter's one of the disciples, but he specifies, be sure you mention it to Peter. He's the one that really needs some help. Tell Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him just as he told you. And when the Apostle Paul writes about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Jesus was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. That's a good one. One of the things that reminds us is no matter what you've done, no matter how strong you said you were and you flaked out, and you think, oh, God can't forgive me for that. You're wrong. You don't know the real God. There's nothing you can do that God can't forgive. I think it's kind of interesting that if you ask people, who are the three greatest heroes of the Bible? I think most people would have to say Moses, David, and the Apostle Paul. Of course, Jesus is accepted from the mix. He's way better than any of them. Do you know what they all three share in common? All three are murderers. <laughs> Moses killed an Egyptian in cold blood. David was an adulterer, a murderer, a cover-up specialist. He did all kinds of things wrong. And he's the only one in the Bible that God says, this is the man after my own heart. You go, what? you got to be kidding. God says, yes. He's my, he's my guy. He's got my heart. And Paul was responsible for the murder of Stephen. You think, God rejects us if we do things wrong. Oh, no, he doesn't. In fact, oftentimes our failures are the gateway to God reaching us. Because many times when we don't fail, we think, oh, well, I don't need God. I can work this out on my own. Until you fail in ways you never thought you could, Ah, then you need God, and we know we need him. That's Peter. And Jesus went right to Peter. That's the third appearance. The fourth one is two men. One of them is called Cleopas. We don't know who the other one is, but they were in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. And that morning, on Easter morning, they had heard word that some people were saying that this Jesus was alive. And they're walking to a town some seven miles away from Jerusalem. And as they're walking and talking, this guy starts walking along with them. 
And the Bible says they were kept from recognizing him. And they're talking about um, what's happened in Jerusalem, all the things that are on the Twitter feed that particular day, and th this guy who's walking with him doesn't seem to know what goes on. They said, where have you been? Don't you know what's been happening in Jerusalem? And so he's walking along with them, and finally they convince this third party to eat a meal with them. And here's what the Bible says happened. When he, this is this third person, was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. <gasps> it was Jesus. And he disappeared. Well, that's the next appearance. That one's a pretty interesting one. Well, they're all interesting. Then on this is still Easter Sunday morning. These, all of these happened within the first day. Jesus appeared now to his disciples. Remember, they're scared to death because Jesus, their leader, was killed as a capital criminal. He was killed because they thought he was going to lead an insurrection against the Roman government. He's a capital criminal, and they thought that since they're his chief followers, they were going to be killed too. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Yeah, but as I, we talked about last week in Easter Sunday, Thomas, my namesake, was not with them because he was kind of sulking somewhere. Remember, he's like Eeyore. And so now a week later, Thomas is with them, and this is what the Bible says happened. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, they're still scared, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, remember Thomas said, I'm not going to believe this stuff about this resurrected Jesus until I actually touch him. So what does Jesus do? He says, okay, Thomas, here you go. He pulls up his shirt. Jesus does, and there's this big wound from where he got stabbed with a spear. He says, hey, it's still pretty fresh. You can touch it. Come on. Reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting, Thomas. You asked for evidence. I've given you evidence. You asked for empirical proof. I've given you empirical proof. Stop doubting, Thomas. It's time for you to believe. Thomas goes, I get it. My Lord and my God. And then Jesus responds to Thomas by saying, Thomas, good job. You have seen the evidence and you believe. But more blessed than you, Thomas, are those who do not get to see the evidence that you have seen. And yet they still believe. And that includes us. His seventh appearance was to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. This is the account where Jesus was um, um, up in Galilee and he was, um, uh, the, 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 his, his buddies who were fishermen by trade were out fishing. And they were having a poor day of fishing and Jesus said, hey, why don't you try the other side of the boat? Which they did. And the Bible records they caught 153 fish. I don't know why they counted 153, that's kind of weird, but just I guess to show you the, the accuracy of the account. And then it's, after that is when Jesus got alone with um, Peter and said, Peter, we got to get you ready to lead this group. And Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And finally, Jesus says, I want you now to feed my sheep. We'll come to that in a couple of weeks. 
Well, his eighth appearance was he's up in Galilee, now in a mountainous region, and he meets with 11 of his disciples on this mountain, and this is where he gives them what we know as the Great Commission. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Well, so would we. I mean, it's, not, it, it's tough to get your brain around the fact that somebody walked out, jumped out of a casket and never died again. I mean, that's pretty hard to believe because we don't see that happening. That's contrary to the empirical evidence we see in life all the time. But they had to wrestle with it too. Why? Because these people are normal. They're not weird. They're just kind of like us. And so it was in this occasion that Jesus then, um, he, he told them that I want you now to go and, and, and tell people about me. Well, there's another one. His ninth appearance, the Bible tells us that we don't know exactly when this happened or where, but he appeared to some 500 people at the same time. This is what Paul wrote about that. Now, Paul wrote, this is 1 Corinthians 15. He wrote this, this letter, around 55 A.D. So that means 25 years after the resurrection. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for dying. We don't like to say, even in our culture, a person died. We say they passed. Why do we do that? It's kinder, you know, it's, it's, it's a little less blunt. It's a euphemism. Falling asleep is a euphemism for death. The Apostle Paul said, he's writing a letter in Greece, in Greek, and he said, there are more than 500 people at one time who saw the risen Jesus Christ, and most of them are still alive. Go ask them. There are 500 eyewitnesses of this at one time. Now, by the way, some legal scholar went and, and took that and said, if you had 500 people who appeared before a court of law, each given six minutes to give their testimony and then to be, to be questioned by the other side, you would have more than 50 hours of testimony. Now, what court in the history of the world would not overwhelmingly say, that's enough? After the first two or three, say, that's enough. We get, we get it. Paul said there are 500 of these people roaming around there. Go ask them. They saw it. And guess how many of them recanted? How many of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who saw the risen Jesus Christ, how many of them ever said, well, I was wrong? Do you know how many? Not a single one. And by the way, do you know what happened to most of these people? They were killed. Now, in our world today, there are many people who are willing to die for a falsehood that they think is true. There are people right today, I hope not in America or any other country in the world, who are gonna strap bombs to themselves today and they're gonna blow themselves up and as many people as they can thinking they're getting a free ride to paradise. I think they're dead wrong, but they think they're right. They believe a lie to be true. Many people will, believe, will die for a lie they believe to be true, but no one's going to die for a lie they know to be false. And most of these people were killed, not a single recantation. Hundreds and hundreds of people said, I will die because I know what I saw. I was absolutely convinced. Well, it's not the end. 
The 10th appearance was to James, Jesus' half-brother. This would be kind of cool. By the way, James is the son of Joseph, but not the son, I mean, he's the son of, of probably Joseph and Mary, but Jesus was the son of Mary, not Joseph. He's his half-brother. At some point, Jesus got together and said, hey, bro. And by the way, the Bible tells us Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe in him until after the resurrection. Would you? What if you grew up with someone who was perfect? Would you like them? How would you like it if your brother or sister was always right and you're always wrong? You think, oh, I'd have a love for them. Oh, I'd be so happy to have a brother or sister that's always right. No, you wouldn't. You'd hate their guts. Of course you would. You'd be envious and jealous and you'd really tick, be ticked by them. But Jude and James, two writers of the Bible, are Jesus' half-brothers and they were completely transformed. I'd like to have been at this one. Hey, bro. What mom told you when you were young is really true. I am the Messiah. I get it now. I get it. Jesus, I get it. And now these, his siblings, can you imagine calling your siblings my Lord and my God? I haven't said that about my brothers and sister recently. <laughs> That's what they said. They were changed. That's his 10th appearance. His 11th, oh, this is just what it says in 1 Corinthians. Just before Jesus left from the Mount of Olives, he ascended to heaven and he met with his followers and here's how the Bible records it. After his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days. How many? Ten days. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's when the church began. Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus left the world there. And his last one's kind of a weird one. He appeared last to the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul didn't see Jesus. He, wasn't, he was alive, but he didn't see the resurrected Jesus. In fact, he was killing Christians. That was his job. And Paul wrote this, and last of all, he appeared to me also. This one was supernatural as to one abnormally born. Now, there they are. There are a lot of them, 12. And there are probably quite a few more that are not recorded. Now, the reason that I go through all this is pretty simple, and I think you get it. The evidence is huge. It's huge. Why? Well, it's pretty obvious. The stakes are pretty high. Can you imagine before any court, and this is what you have presented, you have Jesus appeared many times over a, a long period of time, 40 days. The witnesses included men and women and friends and family and foes, Jews and Gentiles. The diversity of witnesses is amazing. The quantity is hundreds and hundreds of them. The venue, um, inside and outside, in Galilee and Judea and in the mountains and by the lake district. There are all kinds of different places. The, the witnesses, the quality of these witnesses is good. They're, they're just like normal people. And these people who were normal fishermen, blue-collar, working-class ranchers, let's say. They're like Wyoming people. The Bible records that 25 or so years later, these are the words, they have turned the world upside down. How do you get a bunch of no-names 
in 25 years to change the entire course of a world. Something happened to them. <laughs> they saw something, and it changed them radically. We live in a funny world. In our culture today, we are taught that there is no objective truth, on the one hand. On the other hand, we live in a society today in which you must fact-check everything. I think, oh, that's a contradiction. On the one hand, there is no truth. On the other hand, you say, we've got to have truth. We've got to verify. We've got to prove. We've got to check. Which is it? Well, I happen to go with the one that requires proof. This is, by the way, the levels of proof that you would expect in a court of law. I, I don't know, if, how many of you have served on a jury? Could you raise your hands? There are a bunch of us. I served on a murder. I've served on a murder uh, jury as well as a major fraud jury. So I know a little bit about this evidence. If you take what we know from the Bible and from Roman and Jewish history, the level of proof that you would see from the resurrection of Jesus is that second from the top step. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt because we weren't there. This is 2,000 years ago. But is it clear and convincing? Absolutely, yes. Without beyond a reasonable doubt, no. Blake Locke, I'm a claim, I claim to be an historian. He's from Auckland, New Zealand. He's the, the chairman of the classics department at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. I claim to be an historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. This is an expert in the classics. Simply a statement. Religion is an interesting business. Religion generally tells people these things. They say, there are certain rituals that you should follow. There are rigors you should by that mortification, there, there, you, you should suffer a little bit. You know, you should beat your body into submission. That's very common in religions. And you've got to follow some rules, do's and don'ts. And if you do this, there are rewards. Some people say the reward is paradise. Others say the reward of living a good life is heaven. Some say it's nirvana or enlightenment. That's what religion does. But I'm not a fan of religion, though I'm a pastor. Because I want to say, if you're going to ask me to sacrifice, if you're going to ask me to follow your rules and regulations, if you're going to ask me to do your dumb rituals, you had better give me some proof that what you're saying is true. Where's the proof? Some of you weren't alive in the 1980s, but if you were, you know this face, don't you? I can hear you laughing. It's one of the most famous commercials in all of television history. It's, a, it's for Wendy's. And one of the competitors of Wendy's was uh, called the Big Bun. <laughs> and in the commercial, Clara Peller, who became famous because of this, she opens up the Big Bun and there's this little piece of meat. And she goes, where's the beef? Which has now become an idiom in our culture for, where's the proof? Where's the proof? Where's the proof that there is a paradise? Where's the proof that if I live a good life, I go to heaven? Where's the proof that I can reach in nirvana or enlightenment? Where's the proof? Well, if you ask me that as a Christian, I can tell you where the proof is. The proof is in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the proof. Amen. And it is substantial. It is clear and convincing. I've got good news and bad news. 
the bad news first. Jesus once told a parable about somebody who had died and who was really rich on earth and went into Sheol or Hades and, and then there was a real poor man who died and went to paradise. And the rich man is pleading with the poor man saying, hey, go back and tell my family because I don't want them to end up here by me. This is how Jesus ends his story. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And guess what's going to happen within a few weeks of Jesus uttering these words? Lazarus is going to rise from the dead, and then Jesus is. And what did it do? It didn't convince them that they were true. They killed, tried to kill, they wanted to kill Lazarus, and they actually did kill Jesus. You see, evidence is, if you've already made up your mind, you won't be convinced, no matter how much evidence there is. That's just the reality of it. Faith is one of the words I hate. It's not because I don't like faith, but I, I hate the way it's used in our culture today. This is an example of how it's used today. If you rearrange the letters in the word faith, you can spell microwave. Don't question it, just believe me. That's how our world sees the word faith today. Faith means pie in the sky, by and by stupidity, without facts. I go, to the, go to your dictionary. It'll say, oh, faith is people who believe things and they have no evidence, no proof. That is not true. Faith is only as good as its object. Here someone has this, just have faith. I go, that means zilch. Faith in what? Faith means nothing. Faith is only as good as its object. Faith in what? Faith means trust. I trust in Jesus. Amen. That's where my trust is. It's in something. Some people, I, I have faith in faith. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> or I have faith in doorknobs. Wonderful. <laughs> but your faith is only as good as what it's in. Ours is in Jesus. I'm going to end with Timothy Keller. He's a pastor in Manhattan. Very effective pastor, now retired. He has an ability to summarize things beautifully. Gospel, that's this, that's, that means, that's, what, that's our main word as Christians. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. Advice is telling people what they should do. But news is a report of, of what was done for us. Christianity is not advice. It's not telling people how to live a good life, though we want people to live good lives. Christianity is telling people what God did on this planet. And then what are the implications of that for us personally? Amen. Killer then said this, the Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show you how God's grace breaks into your life against your own will sometimes and saves you from the sin and brokenness otherwise you would never be able to overcome. Religion is, if you obey God, then you will be accepted. But the gospel is, if you are accepted, and sure you're accepted, only then will you begin to obey. Those are two utterly different things. Every page of the Bible shows the difference. We don't obey God because to try to earn His favor. We obey God because He favors us. That's what grace means, unmerited favor. We're favored by God. And I end with this. The gospel is not good advice. 
It's a summons to follow a king. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the clarity and simplicity of the good news. And I pray for us here in this place that we would see it, not just intellectually because it's not enough, but we really get it and personalize it for ourselves. I have to admit many times that I know the truth, I don't follow it. I think we're all like that. But that you have unconditionally accepted us because of Jesus is the greatest truth we've ever known. That you took all my sin, my shame, not only what I've done in the past, but what I will do. And you've forgiven me and all of us who are willing to accept it. That's a great gift. And I pray that you'd make that clear to every one of us in this place. For that I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.